Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take research from the equine industry and try to make it accessible for owners and horse enthusiasts. Remember, with each horse, they are an individual, so one size doesn't always fit all. And with that in mind, you should always seek professional advice before implementing the research we discuss. This week on the podcast, we have a really interesting paper that Nancy chose, and it is titled A Case for the Interspecies Transfer of Emotions, a preliminary investigation on how human odors modify reactions of the autonomic nervous system in horses. And that's by Antonio Lanata et al. There was quite a few researchers that collaborated in this study. Um, and I don't know, Nancy, because this was the paper that you've chosen, if you wanted to give the background on how the study went. Well, it's a really interesting study. It comes out of Italy. And what they were trying to do was expound upon the fear reactions of horses and how horses feed off their owners, trainers, on far that fear response. So it was seven horses, so it's a low sample size, but um, they used a baseline uh, echocardiogram for comparison, and then they took three odor samples from people who were unfamiliar to the horses. So they had a happiness sweat sample, and then they had the fear sweat sample, and then they had no sample whatsoever on the cotton pad. So no sweat was put on that at all. So they had their control group pretty well set up. And, um, you know, they were just trying to assess whether horses can pick up human emotions from human sweat, which has an odor. And they put these cotton pads under their arms and um, they would go ahead and have the people watch a happy video for 25 minutes or a very scary video for 25 minutes. And then they would take those samples, put them in a test tube, and then see what kind of reaction they would get from the horses. I found this so fascinating because I love the parts of research where you read the materials and methods and you just see all the little things the researchers thought of to either rule out or to try and control the study. And for this, for taking these sweat samples, it was really interesting. So they, the people that they took them from had to follow a really strict protocol where two days before the donation, they weren't allowed any odorous food, no alcohol, no smoking, no excessive exercise. And then they were provided with scent-free personal care products and detergents prior to it as well. So like no other scent other than their own personal sweat could be on their body. So I thought that was so interesting. And what they did as well is they took the, so say, for example, all of the happiness samples and they cut up the pieces and put a piece of each one together. So the tube that contains the sweat happiness um, contains a piece of each person's. 
to try yeah. and just control, you know, it's not just one person's scent that's causing this um, response in the horse. It's actually, this is the happiness sample from everyone. This is the fear sample from everyone. And I just thought that was so intelligent because I think like when you plan research, so much has to go into it. You really do have to go down every avenue of possibility to try and narrow down what you're doing and make it more reliable. I agree. I mean, they thought of everything with this. And I might not have thought about doing that to have a representation of everyone's happiness or fear sample. And I thought that was really um, good thinking on their part. And, you know, the reason they do this research is to build upon prior research and to maybe help us in managing these animals because fear reactions cause um, the most accidents or deaths relating to horses. So research always dealing around that fear response and how to kind of quiet that response in a horse is for our own safety. It's so beneficial. And I just thought it was interesting because you said like the this is kind of building on previous research. So they had done studies like this in dogs and in rats, and they found that they had, um, they elicited a response to these smells and these odors. But when they were discussing the background to it, they said as well that um, domestic horses are able to discriminate between different human faces. They know who's familiar and who's not familiar. Um, and even that, humans constitute such a significant social part of the horse's um, social herd, if you will. And especially in more modern times where our horses are in small stables and they're just seeing maybe that one person, they may not be interacting with other horses at all. And it reminds me of a story a vet told me. Um, and I can't remember if it was her horse or if it was her friend's horse, but it had been in the hospital for a week or two weeks and it started to become really depressed and they allowed her to go in and see the horse and the owner just visiting the horse lifted its spirits so much so I think we have such an effect we always just quantify it in what they bring to our lives I don't think we always think about what we're bringing to that side of the bond for them as well Yep, that's true. And in the introduction on this paper states that when caretakers who take care of the horses, whether it's the owners or a boarding facility, those caretakers almost become a conspecific of that horse. So it becomes like a herd mate. And that is so psychologically important to the horse to be able to hook up with someone when they can't hook up with other horses. And I suppose it is, the paper doesn't discuss this, but it must be a part of evolution in the horse. You know, like the domesticated horse spends so much time with people. It's in their species benefit to learn how to read us better and to pick up cues just as much as it's in our benefit to learn their behavior. And that just kind of brings us back to, what you said about the um, accidents from fear related, mm -hmm. you know, being able to read our horses and being able to control our emotions as well so that we're balancing those two behaviors together. So we have a safer, better 
response, I guess. Yeah, I looked up some other papers. And one of the papers that is um, one that I thought was so interesting, the paper we're discussing today was written in 2018, or published in 2018. There was one published in 2011 that um, correlated fear observations in horses with their heart rate. So it appears that this paper is building on that paper and the reference papers that this current paper references they're building upon that research. And um, that research in 2011 dealt with umbrellas and tarps and habituation of horses to those things. And they analyzed the fear response um, by six different kind of facial or head movements that the horse would do. And it was the ears pointing towards the object that they were focused on. And it was also the elongation of the upper lip. And I never Mm -hmm. really noticed that as a fear response, because usually you're on the back of a horse, so you're not going to see their what their lips are doing. But I thought about maybe doing groundwork and seeing if I couldn't see that. Um, And then at the same time, there are their tense neck muscles because they usually elevate their neck and some could vocalize and snort and kind of do that snuffling noise. And then almost always their evasive movements were leaning backwards and then uh, flight behavior running away or trying to go away, stepping sideways. So this research um, was using the heart rate that when you're working with your horse is most likely going to have one of these analyzed behaviors behind it. I think that's such a great point um, that you made about the elongation of the lip as well, because it's so true. I think like we focus a lot on the ears, Mm -hmm. um, but the lips and the eyes, like they are so expressive and to non-horse people, this will sound like a different language because I think people who don't know horses will look at one horse to the next and see the exact same thing. But the way they can hold their mouth and their eyes is just such an expressive um, kind of warning they can even give off. And you know that from growing up with horses and working with horses, you know, if their ears, they don't have to be fully pinned back for you to think, oh, that mare is going to try and bite me if I get too close (laughs) you can just see that lip start to wobble a little bit and their eyes look like they're starting to bunch up and you're like yeah they're not happy yeah you can see it and I think it's so interesting um Richard Mott one of our um co-students at Edinburgh has now gone on to do a PhD on the blink rate in stressed horses. And when he's done with his research, we may have him on the show, but um, it's so interesting that the horses, when they're initially stressed, will have a higher blink rate until they kind of calm down a little bit. And, you know, that's, that's something I would have never thought of either. So um, I think they're just such subtle animals 
like they really do have great poker faces where they don't give a lot away unless you know what to look for. And the blink rate was one of those things. When I heard about it, I was like, I never, ever knew that this was an indicator before. So it's fascinating. Um, Also, there was another paper that I went to to investigate fear. And it was actually a PhD thesis done by a lady in Canada. And she entitled it Fear in Horses and How It is Affected by the Rider Training and Genetics. And I specifically focused on the rider portion. And um, Kate mentioned that maybe we might want to do three shows on this PhD thesis because it is so interesting. And um, I know some horse enthusiasts are familiar with it because a lot of horse publications came out with her research a few years back and um, the rider would be on the horse and at any point in the riding arena an umbrella could open or a jet of water could be sprayed your direction and the rider would not know where at those points it was going to happen and their heart rate would rise as well as the horses and for every one beat per minute rise in the rider the horse's heart rate went up 0.32 beats per minute so almost a third so it correlated though so anyway uh, we may talk about that but I thought that was interesting because perhaps um, that research was done in 2007 the paper we're discussing today, um, it maybe it was according to rider odor that changed who's to wasn't. So anyway, all this research can eventually be connected, hopefully, to arrive at a sound conclusion. And the best thing is about research, you can repeat it and see if you get the same results. Exactly. And I think another great thing about when you were saying hopefully it could all be connected is there is that opportunity. I mean, you know, if you decide that research is something that's piquing your interest, you don't necessarily have to do experimental research. You can do um, secondary papers. So you can do a literature review and you can sit down with all these different papers and see where those commonalities are and where the differences lie. And that's what helps to tie all of this together. And you can come to conclusions from that as well, because that's very much how the paper on bits and bridles that we did was put together. And it found, you know, groundbreaking information in there. And it didn't have to be experimental to do that. And, um, you know, I always think before I read a paper and then again, after I've read it is, You know, why should we care? What does this research matter? Why did they do it? And, you know, most of the time it's for our safety and for the horse's safety in managing them. So whether it's nutrition, our psychology, our physiology, the reason we do this research is to benefit the horse owner, the rider, the trainer, and the horse most of all. Yeah. And in this one, the way they gathered the information um, for us to see what that reaction was. I think what's great about this paper, actually, as a side note, is that you can go down 
so many more avenues. And even the author seems so optimistic about that, that this is such a good starting point to determine those things and to try and improve that horse rider um, relationship. But they, in the study, started it by putting an elastic smart belt on the horses. So this was how they took these measurements and it fastened around the chest, just behind the shoulder area. And it picked up an ECG. So it picked up a heart rate and rhythm and it picked up their respiration. So how they were breathing. Mm -hmm. And they started off by putting this on and just leaving the horse alone in the box. And that's to collect a baseline. So they're picking up what's normal for this horse because you have to consider as well in research, when you add something new, that can have a response. So even just putting this monitor on can elicit a response in the horse. Letting them acclimatize to it and collecting the data as a baseline is a great starting point. Um, but then what they did was they basically just offered the horses the samples to smell. Um, a person stood, I think, was it one meter away, Nancy? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And the horse, if they leaned out over... So the stable door was left open, but a rope was in place so the horse couldn't leave. And if they leaned out over the rope, they could smell and touch the person that was offering them this scent. And it found that there was a strong response for both the um, fear and the happiness sense that were given to them to smell. It was it's really unique the way they set this up and um I was thinking, what well, if I wanted to repeat this, I might add in everyone use the same deodorant because there's no one that goes to the barn without wearing deodorant. Yeah. And can the horse still pick up that fear odor through the odor of a deodorant? And I don't know. I think they probably could. But there's your research question. Does perfume, cologne, yeah. aftershave, whatever, soap even, does it make a difference? Because in this case, we have the research that is done with odor-free products. What happens when we add those odor products to our hygiene? So anyway. That would be so interesting that, to see. I would like to do that just to see if you get a different result or the same result. And I always suspect horses can see through the hygiene products that we use. And it's funny because my mayor, um, just she became notoriously hard to load in a box um, quite a while back. And there was nothing that really seemed to trigger it. We used to go, now that I think about it, we used to go to some competitions with her and I was probably like an anomaly in the equine world where I just don't like to compete. Um, I think I have a bit too much of a laid back personality and I can't get the drive. So I just get nervous when it comes to competitions. I don't enjoy any of it until it's over. <laughs> That's my favorite part. But I love watching competitions, but not taking part. <laughs> And I wonder if that was the beginning of her not wanting to load, because in the morning when we would load her to go to the competition, I would be like a coiled spring and she would get in and we would travel and we would go and we would come back. And then all of a sudden she just wouldn't get in the box anymore. 
And the more she refused to get in the box, the more we became, you know, obviously alert to the fact she's not going to go in. And it became a mind frame where she would load if people who had seen her like refuse to load weren't there. So if anyone had witnessed her refusing to load, they could be nowhere nearby because even like a third degree person being there, she wouldn't get in because it was almost like she could sense that they knew she wasn't going to do it. So then we had a good run of um, a family friend loading her for us uh, where we wouldn't even go to the yard. We would just let them go pick her up and they would bring her and she would get in for them. And it was just, it absolutely blew my mind because we did so much training. We tried to habituate her to going back into the trailer. We fed her in it. She would walk in and out and in and out of that trailer, load up, not a problem. The day you were to go somewhere, she wouldn't get in. And And I, I could never put my finger on what it was, but she had to have smelt that on us even because we were, every time we were nervous. Yeah. And you know what? I, you're not the only ones that experience this. I hear this all the time that the, you know, when you're going for a leisurely trail ride somewhere, they hop right in. But when you're all amped up because you're competing and you're nervous and, you know, they pick up on that and maybe it's via odor, maybe it's heart rate. Um, at any rate, mm-hmm. this paper has connected odor with heart rate, and that's the one link that I have never seen connected to the fear response in horses. Same. I wouldn't have thought that that was part of it. I mean, I would have sooner said they can read our minds than I would have thought well, our odor was playing a role. I would think it was like a mental telepathy where you're feeling that and they know you so well that they're reading your inner emotions and all that who's to say that you know they're prey animals they're built on surviving an attack from a predator who's to say a lot of that is olfactory in nature how they read that danger versus non-danger and um you know it's a lot to be said and i'll go on if it's okay kate with what the conclusion of the study yeah of course and um they put it through statistical testing and all the tests showed that human fear odor caused an increase in spectral power on both the low frequency and high frequency bandwidths of the electrocardiograms. So, you know, how can this help us? Well, it can maybe help us to design a more effective strategy to manage Mm -hmm. our horses across a whole range of situations. I was thinking on assisted, um, you know, like horse assisted therapy. How often do you have a handicapped child on one of these horses And you may have a handler that you don't know is really afraid of horses. And, you know, that horse could maybe be reading danger off of them. So, and also we could use it in horse racing because if I'm training a, a racehorse, I don't want a groom taking my horse to the saddling area that is afraid and nervous 
because the horse may run its race and use its energy Mm -hmm. in that saddling area versus out on the racetrack. So there are all kinds of implications we can use this in managing our horses. And even just from that point of view, like just looking at racing, that's such a great point because we know that racehorses will burn massive nervous energy, you know, through excitement or through nerves before they ever get out onto actually doing the race. And that's why, you know, doping had been such a big thing in the past because it would keep the horse calm before the race. So they weren't, you know, running the race in the paddock, so to speak. But that's such a great point that, you know, are the people who are involved too hyped up or, you know, too, I suppose, emotional to be able to bring that horse calmly? And to control it in that way, because that has such a knock on effect then on how they run, which is a huge industry. I think so, too. And, you know, you always see the horse that's washing out in the post parade and you wonder if it isn't something going on in that barn that created that. And and what it yeah. seems like in horses, once they have a learned behavior it is so hard to extinct that behavior or bring the behavior to extinction, I should say, because all mm-hmm. fear responses, people can deal with them and put them under the surface. Horses have a hard time with eliminating that fear response. And some research by Andrew McLean says it's never eradicated. It's never brought to extinction. It's always lurking under the water, ready to rear its ugly head. So we have to learn how to keep it in check. And I don't know if I mentioned this on a previous podcast or not, um, but there is research that shows how fear is such a strong response in us. It's actually passed down through generations Mm -hmm. to generations that have no contact with it. And they've seen this in studies of cows where if the like mother cow essentially Um, fell into a river, fell into a lake, her calf would be wary of water. And they tried to replicate it in rats. And in I must find this study because it's fascinating. But what they did was they had um, a group of rats and they would release a cherry blossom scent. And the cage, the floor of the cage was electrified. So anytime they released this scent, they gave a little shock to the rats. So the rats became afraid of the scent. They then bred the rats, got their offspring, didn't expose them to the scent or the shock, bred them again and took that second generation. And when they released just the scent of the cherry blossom, they cowered and hid. Wow, that's fast. And the control group never had any reaction to the smell. So it actually got passed down. And they're looking into this more, how we pass that down through our genes, that sense of fear. But I suppose as well, we don't fully know how animals communicate to each other and what message they're able to um, give to their offspring as well. Because we know that, you know, mothers are going to teach their offspring what to be careful of, especially in our prey animals. But it's just such a fascinating idea because fear is really one of the strongest responses that we have. Yeah, And I bet um, 
that PhD research we're going to be covering by um, her last name is Von Borstel. Um, she talks about uh, the rider, the training, and genetics. So it definitely, and I just wonder if that's under the category of epigenetics, because that's kind of like an, a blossoming field right now, especially in human medicine, mm -hmm. where people can actually um, learn what genes to express psychologically in which genes might be something that are carried over from parents or grandparents. So it is definitely, I, um, there's Dr. Caroline Leaf has a lot of neuroscientific research on that and gene expression. And it's, it's absolutely fascinating, especially when it comes to fear because so many equestrians quit riding and quit dealing with horses because of a fear factor. And I just think, um, you know, if you're made aware of why you're fearful, how you can address it, it won't affect you and your horse as much. Definitely. And I really look forward to reading um, that PhD paper. I just think it's going to be so fascinating. Yeah, we'll break it down into three shows because it is 182 pages and a lot of homework, a lot of homework for us. Plus, um, we want to be able to cover uh, the fear in horses dealing with riders and then dealing with training because um, I haven't read the training section yet, but it's kind of like you don't want to do anything that is like spooking your horse or bring that fear response and not cut it off before it becomes a problem. So um, we'll cover that in a second uh, episode. And then the third episodes, we'll talk about genetics. And hopefully um, you can bring that rat research into it with the cherry blossoms and the electrified cage because that is crazy that it went two generations it's amazing i'm actually reading a book it's more focused on the human aspect but all of the studies are always carried out first in animals so there's been a lot of research in it but yeah I'll definitely i'll look it up again to get the name of okay. it and on that point as well actually if any of our listeners have some research or even some areas that you want us to look into the research and discuss on the podcast, do let us know because we've got that um, option where you can send us a voice message on Anchor and we can include your message or if you just want to contact us via email or on the Instagram page, you can do that. And even if you are a researcher and you'd like to collaborate or you'd like to join an episode, reach out and let us know. Um, you can support us as well. So we do have a button on the Anchor homepage if you want to support the research we're doing because um, it definitely does take some time and energy. This PhD one is probably going to take a lot more. But Nancy and I, um, we have to pay for access to some of the journals we do and academic library access can cost quite a bit as well. So if you do decide that you enjoy the podcast, and you would like to keep hearing more research, then there is that option there. Sounds wonderful. And we enjoy this so much. We enjoy having all the listeners. We're now 
being listened to in seven countries. So it's amazing, um, everybody that is listening in and hopefully learning. Anything you want to tell us or um, have us research, just give us a holler and we'll be happy to do it. And if you are in another country or even if you are in the UK or America, it would be great if you could go onto the Instagram page and just comment on the episode and let us know where you're listening from. So the Instagram page is conversations.equinescience. Um, and you'll see when you go onto it, we've got the other episodes posted. So you'll be able to make sure that's us. And just let us know because I'd love to know where you're actually tuning in from. Sounds great. And thanks everyone for listening today. And next week we begin the three-part series and the name of the paper is Fear in Horses and How It is Affected by the Rider, Training, and Genetics. We look forward to seeing you next Friday. Take care. Bye-bye.